God himself with his creativity and intelligence. They went out walking through streets paved with gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering. of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face to face. I have standing with me two handsome men, all the way from Torox, Spain. Uh, did I pronounce it right? Yes. Yeah. Excellent. We have Arthur and we have Christopher. And uh, they came up, they've been emailing for a little while saying, hey, we're gonna be in town for the holidays to see family and stuff. And, and they're very excited, they watch the show. Uh, streaming or online download i don't know but it's great to have them thanks for coming on thank you all right you guys all right god bless well uh, if you have family or friends living in torox spain or anywhere else and they can't watch uh heart of the matter on television they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch it live streaming from anywhere in the world uh uninterrupted so invite them to do that <clears throat> i was a born again mormon the hard copies on back order, way back order, but uh, it is available for a PDF download at www.bornagainmormon.com. Uh, That's for free. You just go click on a few buttons, it downloads, and you have it in your hand. Alathia Ministries is taking a one-week break. First time in our history it's an official break. Uh, Calvary Campus is meeting again beginning on Sunday, January 3rd. Heart of the Matter will begin airing its 2010 programs on Tuesday, January 5th. So next week will be a rerun. And the Infallible Word will begin airing its new programs on Monday, January 11th. Start 2010 off right and show up and tune in and uh, check out the programming that we try to offer through Aletheia Ministries. <clears throat> we recently received an email from a, a Latter-day Saint woman who has seen the light and walked from Mormonism altogether. She sent us an email wherein she shared two sad but true incidents that happened in her home ward. First, she told us that last year at the ward Christmas party, the members all got together and gathered together and sang happy birthday to Joseph Smith. His birthday was on December 23rd, and so they figured, well, we're celebrating Jesus' birthday by having a party. Let's sing happy birthday to Joseph Smith. This began to teeter the scales in, in favor of getting out. And this year, adding insult to injury, the bishop announced that there would be no ward Christmas party because they used the ward budget on the Halloween extravaganza. But up, uh, perfect. And so with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we love you and we need you in our lives. Whoever we are, whatever we do, we need you and we pray to you. We pray for our audience here and out there uh, in TV land or through YouTube, we pray for our technical staff, our volunteers, and everything that goes on for producing this show. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. We're supposed to have a graphic come up right now. Which one? Uh, it says right there on the script, what child is this? What child is it? <laughs> we don't have that graphic. Ah, okay, well. Imagine right now that our, our staff worked, labored all day long for a graphic to come up right now. It's pulsating. What child is this? That's what it says. And that's the name of our show tonight. LDS Apostle James E. Faust said, as printed in the May 1984 conference report of the Ensign, quote, the first vision of Joseph Smith confirms the fact that there are three separate gods. God the Father, Elohim, 
in whom we address our prayers, Jesus Christ, Jehovah, and the Holy Ghost. Aside from the absolute heretical and non-biblical statement that says uh, that the first vision confirms the fact that there are three separate gods, James Faust said that God the Father's name is Elohim and that Jesus' name is Jehovah. Now understand, the LDS literally believe that God the Father's name, like my given name is Sean, and that God the Father's name is Elohim, like your dad might be Harold, or your dad might be Henry. His name is Elohim, and that Jesus' given name is Jehovah. You got all that? Every Latter-day Saint, when they enter into an LDS temple, see a film. I'm not breaking any rules by telling you what's shown in this film. And in that film, God the Father is depicted in a body of flesh and bone, and he is called by the proper noun Elohim. And Jesus, he appears in a body of flesh and bone, and he is called by the proper noun Jehovah. We're going to end this year of 2009 with a look at these names, their meaning, and how they reveal the nature of this child that we're going to celebrate being born here this coming December 25th. Now, there are three primary things that enemies of Christianity have attacked since Jesus was born in the manger. His identity, his word, and his solution to sin. Who Jesus is, the literal words he has said, and what is meant by the good news. Enemies question and alter his identity. That's the first thing. Cynics challenge the reliability of his words. And false religions add or take away from what he said is the path to heaven. They usually add something to it or take away from it, but usually that's how they do. And this has been the case from the beginning. In John 12, 44, Jesus himself cried out and said, He that believeth on me, listen to this, he said, he that believeth on me, believeth not on me. He said, but him that sent me. And he that sees me, he says, sees him that sent me. That's what Jesus said. This is really curious speech. Then in John 8, 24, Jesus warned the religious rulers of his day, if you don't believe, if you believe not that I am, remember, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Not just believing in a personage called Jesus, but believing that Jesus is the I am. All right? In short, when we understand his true identity, we will believe that he is the I am. That Jesus wasn't just this or that, but he is the I am. And then we are assured by believing on that that we will go to heaven and our sins, whatever they may be, will be forgiven. Do you believe that Jesus is the I am? Now, in Exodus 3.14, Moses went to God and asked, hey, what do I tell the children of Israel your name is when they ask me? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, or God added, thus thou shalt say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Okay? Now the Septuagint translates this name, I am who exists. The inference being, I am the one who has always existed. All right? The Arabic paraphrases these words saying, I am the eternal who passes not away. The Targum of Jonathan and the Jerusalem Targum paraphrase the words like this. He who spake and the world was, who spake and all things existed. That's how they translate that word, those words, I am. According to the best linguistic scholars, these original words literally signify, I will be what I will be, pointing out the eternality and the self-existing nature of that name, I am. Even Plato in his Paramedes, a philosopher, states, nothing can express God's nature, therefore no name 
can be attributed to him that we understand. Now, there are two Hebrew words that we have to consider when it comes to understanding God. Elohim and Jehovah. Elohim in Hebrew means God. It's a general title for God, okay? If I were speaking Hebrew in the following sentences, if I said Satan is the God of this world or God created the heavens and the earth or Ozzy Osbourne is the God of rock, all of those where the word God is used, if I was speaking Hebrew, I would use the word Elohim. So I would say Satan is the Elohim of this world. Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and Ozzy Osbourne is the Elohim of rock. It's a title. And throughout the Old Testament, you can see that that word Elohim is just a title for the name or title of God. Um, now, the personal name of God, the eternal, the self-existing, the one and only God, the I am being monotheistic, one God, is a word we pronounce as Jehovah. And this name, which is a very bad pronunciation on our part, let me tell you, Jehovah is not right. It represents the letters Y-H-W-H, okay? Those are just all consonantal letters. And it's really probably, probably more pronounced Yahweh. But we say Jehovah, same word, okay? And it is not a title, but it's a proper noun for God, it's his name. Listen, in Isaiah 42.8, he says, I am the YHWH. He says, that is my name. Okay? And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. It's long been questioned, what does the YHWH, not what does, how do we pronounce that? Now, Americans say Jehovah. Uh, Yehu is another one. Yeveh is another one. Yevi, uh, Jehu, Yahu, Yahu, uh, Jahio, and Jove are all pr uh, just as good names as uh, pronunciations as Jehovah for the YHWH. It has also been wondered um, at what the name means. And it's really interesting, but God himself sort of identifies what his own name means in Exodus 34. Moses had shattered the, the tablets. He got ticked off at the children of Israel and he broke the first tablets and God said, okay, come back up to the mount and we're gonna make some more, all right? Or you're gonna make some more. And it reads in Exodus 34, beginning in verse five, and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the YHWH. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the YHWH, the Y-H-W-H Elohim, okay? He said the Jehovah, as we pronounce it, Elohim, all right? Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy of four thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, and that by no means will clear the guilty. The words of God's own mouth contain a partial interpretation of what the Y-H-W-H means. Now, the YHWH, the Yahweh, uh, is known by a very large Greek technical word as the tetragramma, tetragrammaton, okay? And that's, the, that's what it means, those four letters. Almost, listen to this, almost every time when reading the Old Testament, when we see the word God, G-O-D, G, uh, uppercase G-O-D, uh, that is the Hebrew word Elohim no matter who it's talking about, the title. Then when we see the word Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D, but the whole word shrunken down to fit the text, but Lord is all capitalized, it's the Hebrew word for the Y-H-W-H, for Jehovah, for Yahweh, all right? Now Elohim and Yahweh are used interchangeably, completely within the Old Testament. They are always used as one in the same. This is very important to our discussion today. We're going to show you a bunch of scriptures. Let me read some to you and just listen to this so you can identify who Jesus was. In Deuteronomy 4.35 it says, Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God, Elohim. There is none else beside him. That verse says that Yahweh is God, there is no other. Okay? Okay. 
Psalms 103. Know ye that Yahweh, he is God. It is, so Jehovah, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 1 Kings 18.39 says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Jehovah, he is Elohim. The Jehovah, he is the Elohim. Now, that's really important because the the in that statement where it says, the Jehovah, where Jehovah, he is the Elohim, what that is saying is in uh, linguistics, the is the definite article. It means there cannot be any other. Jehovah, he is the, big T-H-E, God. You got that? There's no Elohim Father. There's no Jehovah Son. This is Jehovah is God, and they are interchangeable. And then in Psalm 97.9, just to give you another example, it says, For thou, uh, uh, Jehovah, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted above all, it says, gods. Okay? And in this passage, we see Elohim used for all gods, like the Ozzy Osbourne kind of God. And, and the Old Testament recognizes that there's different kinds of gods. And it calls them the Elohim, okay? I, want the, I wanted to establish this in our minds when Jesus says in John 12, 44, 45, He that believes on me does not believe on me, but believes on him who sent me. And he who sees me does not see me, but sees him who sent me. He's expressing who he was in the flesh, his identity and how he is one with the invisible God, that he is the self-existing I am. Yes, Jesus took on a body of flesh. And yes, as a man, he subjected himself to the will of the invisible God. That's what the New Testament calls the Father in heaven, the invisible God. Jesus took on a body so that he could become man. He could do and overcome all the things that we can't. We cannot, and he did it for us, and we believe on him, and by believing on him, we are believing on the self-existent one, on the I am. Now, when we look at Deuteronomy 4 and Psalms 100 and Kings and Psalms 97, we're able to discover several, several truths. First, the name Elohim and Jehovah are wholly interchangeable. Jehovah is the ultimate and only God, or, and Elohim is the ultimate and only Jehovah. Second, Elohim is a title and not a proper noun. Remember, it can even be a uh, applied to Ozzy or Satan. And okay, with all that in place, Jesus cries out, believe on me and you believe on him who sent me. It's my hope to spend the next few minutes providing, uh, I mean, proving that this babe in the manger that we celebrate on this day on the 25th, which was not the day, but that we say and we can prove through scripture that that babe in the manger was completely Elohim, and completely Yahweh, and completely God. And uh, allow some statements to verify this, and we're going to give you some scriptures that lie out here. For future reference, check them out, and just listen. If you don't want to write them down, you can look at the show later. You ready? All right. God raises the dead. John 5, 1 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so even the Son gives life to whom he will. So, and then uh, the very same verse supports that for the Son and the Father. So both raise the dead, okay? God is the Word. You ready? John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all right? And then in John 1.14, Jesus is the Word, listen, and the Word became flesh, John 1.1 1, 1 says the word was God, and John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So uh, another one, God heals all diseases according to Psalm 103. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Okay, all your diseases, God, the Lord, Jehovah, Elohim, he heals all diseases. And then in Matthew 8.16, we read that Jesus he, took up, he healed all sicknesses. He took upon our infirmities. He took upon our sin. He is the healer. Another one, God never changes. In Malachi 3, 6, it says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Hebrews 13, 8, speaking of Jesus, says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The unchangeability of God is there with Jesus and the invisible God. God created the universe and the earth Himself. Listen to this verse. 
Isaiah 44, 24, it says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, um, and he who formed you from the womb, he writes, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. That's what God says in the, in the uh, Old Testament about the creation. And then in John 1.3, speaking of Jesus, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In Colossians 1.6, it says, For by him were all things created, speaking of Jesus, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That's speaking of Jesus. Okay, in uh, Isaiah, it talks about God creating everything by himself, one God. Uh, John talks about, and Colossians talks about Jesus creating all things. God is the first and the last. Isaiah 41.4, who has wrought it and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and the last, I am. That's what he says there about himself. Jesus is the first and the last. In Revelation 1.17, it talks, it descri he describes himself as, he says, I am the first and the last. Okay? God forgives sins. In Psalms, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not the benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities and heals all thy diseases. And in Mark, the Jews ask, Who can forgive sins but God only? Okay? The Jews knew this. And then in Mark 2, 5, and when they saw their faith, he, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick, uh, son, your sins be forgiven you. The Jews asked, who can heal sins, who can forgive sins but God? And then uh, later on, Jesus, he says, your sins are forgiven you. God is our redeemer. Isaiah 63, 16, it says, doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Jesus is our Redeemer, based on Titus 2, 13, 14. And um, God is one, uh, one, Apostle Faust. God is one, not three separate gods. God is one, the Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right? Uh, and then we know that Jesus and God are one, even though he took on a flesh. What did Jesus say? I and my father are one. Jesus said to Philip, when he said, Jesus, show us the father. Jesus said to Philip, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Okay. In John, 1 John 5, 7, it says, there are three that bear record in heaven, the father, the word, and the Holy Ghost. It says, and these three are one. God has a son. In Psalms 2, 7, it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord, the, the Yahweh, he said to me, thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Jesus is God's son. And the Jews, when they were seeking to kill him, they said, we're going to do this because he called God his father, quote, listen, making himself equal with God. Because they know there's one God. And if he's his son, he was making himself equal. God is the I am. We talked about what God said to Moses, what am I going to say? Uh, Moses says, what am I going to say when I go into the children of Israel? He says, you tell them I am. Jesus in John 8, 58, he looks at the Jews and he says, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him because he said it. Only God is worshipped. Matthew 4, 10. Then said Jesus, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Exodus 3, uh, 34, 14 says, Thou shalt worship no other God for the Lord, for Jehovah, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God, okay? And then Jesus is worshipped. While uh, Jesus was speaking once, a ruler came up and worshipped him, it says, and Jesus did not stop him. In Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, it says, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten in the world, he said, all the angels of God will worship this first begotten, speaking of Jesus. And then Thomas, when he felt the prince in Jesus' hands, he bowed down and he worshiped him and he said, my Lord and my God. Again, that's who that baby was when it came into this earth. Uh, God is from everlasting, Psalm 93, 1 through 2. Jesus is from everlasting, Micah 5, 2. 
only God can be glorified. Uh, Jesus is glorified uh, as uh, with the glory that he had with the Father before coming to this earth and becoming less on our behalf. God is the judge of the whole world, Psalm 94, 1 through 2. Jesus is the judge of the whole world, John 5, 22. God is the Holy One, Psalm 71, 22. Jesus is called the Holy One, Luke 4, 34. God is the only Savior, Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, the Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. And in Luke, uh, it talks, uh, it talk, Mary talks about uh, being the mother of God, my Savior. And then we know from John that only Jesus is the Savior. Now, really quickly, we have a couple minutes. Let me give you a couple to write down if you want to reference these. These are some supportive passages that help you understand the identity of Jesus even more through the New Testament. You ready? 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, it says. Hmm. All right. Philippians 2.5.8. He sa it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, made himself in the flesh of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and becoming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 1 John 5, 7, that's the one that talks about there are three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Those three are one. Uh, Acts uh, 28 talks about the church of God being purchased by his own blood. The church of God being purchased by God's own blood. Acts uh, 7.57, when Stephen looked up into heaven, he called upon God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He looks up into heaven and he calls out to God and he says, Lord, he calls out to God, Lord Jesus, save my spirit. Colossians 1.13 through 19, Paul writes of God saying, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And then he goes on speaking of the son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin, who is in the image of the invisible God. Okay, not a God with flesh and bone. Because Jesus said, God is a spirit, and a spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see me have. So we can't have God in a body of flesh and bone. And Colossians 2.9 talks about the fullness of the uh, Godhead dwelling in him bodily. And now as we enter in this Christmas time of year, where we celebrate in many different ways about Jesus being born, let me read you a, two more verses. Matthew 1.23. It says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Before we go to the phones, just one more. God is also the Messiah. In Handel's Messiah, which the LDS are great at reciting with tremendous amount of vocal fervor, but spiritual blindness... Uh, the composer quotes Isaiah 9.6, and he writes, he quotes Isaiah saying, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, capital W, Counselor, capital C, the Mighty God, capital G, the Mighty Elohim, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, one God. And then, and, then, and then Isaiah says, the everlasting father, he calls this child that's going to be born. And with a capital F, and it's the only time a capital F is used for father in the Old Testament, when it's describing Jesus coming and becoming God incarnate in the flesh, the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus was talking to a woman at the well, she said, I know that the Messiah comes, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. And what did Jesus say to her? He said, I that speak unto thee am he. And unless we believe that he is the I am, 
we will die in our sin. It is our belief in him as the I am, I am, that takes the sin. It is his blood shed for us that does it. It's not our righteousness. It's not our lives lived. It is our faith in him, the I am, born into a manger, an ignominious manger, and living a life that was nothing for us. That is where salvation comes from. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. First time callers, please, LDS callers, if at all possible, and please turn down your TV sets once the operators clear your calls. Um, We're going to show you a spot, I don't know what they have planned, and uh, then we'll come back and read a couple emails and go to your calls. Be right back. Many things live in our city. But this Christmas, hope lives here. I'm Sean McCraney with Alathea Ministry, producer of Heart of the Matter. We exist solely on the support of those who appreciate our efforts at reaching others with the saving message from Jesus Christ. We want to invite you, if you're so inclined, to come alongside with us, partner with us financially. Now, all uh, support and prayers are greatly appreciated, but Heart of the Matter Partners, or HOTM Partners, has been carefully designed to supply support for Aletheia Ministries' long-term sustainability without burdening individuals too much. On your screen is an address. You can write to partners there, ask information, whatever you want to do, we'll send you a brochure. Also, if you're interested, you can check us out at www.hotm.tv. Additionally, you can call us, 1-888-868-4686. All prayers, all support are appreciated. God bless you. See you Tuesdays. Oh, sorry. We're back. I was just giving some instructions to a guest of ours. Uh, Some emails as the operators clear your lines. The lines are full, but keep trying to get through, and we'll take your calls as best as possible. This is from Dave, who says, So you think my faith is a cult. Now and then I tune into your show. I got to tell you, every single email we get from somebody who does not like us always says, every now and then I happen to be passing by, every now and every time, every single email. So don't write that, you waste your time. Uh, they say, uh, every time I tune, in, I tune into your show now so I can see what the devil looks like. Uh, Mr. McCraney, you're about as far as being a Christian as anybody I've ever listened to. Get over your hatred. There is nothing Christ-like about you at all. Well, uh, Dave, the definition of a cult is pretty straightforward. There is a great study by a PhD. His name is Dr. Robert J. Lifton. And that guy, he spent like 10 years studying the methodologies the communists uh, in communist China use on people. And uh, he calls them totalist methodologies. And he lists like 12 And any religion, I mean, and there are Christian cults out there all over the place. They use the same methodologies to get people and break them and make them their own. But uh, any religion that uses these tactics, one or two or three or all 12, is definitely borderline or a full-blown cult. And I got to tell you, Mormonism utilizes every one of them. Go do a Google search on Robert J. Lifton's uh, and write, just write cult, and you'll be able to read all 12 things. And just try to look at the religion and see. Uh, as someone who's a fan of the show, Kathy, she says she uh, needed to write because she was disappointed on how I handled a few calls on our December 15th show. She says that while she knows the program is to reach out to the Latter-day Saints with the message of Jesus Christ, she had a couple exceptions to the way I handled it. One was there was a caller who wanted to know about her gay friend and where it said in the Bible it was a sin to be gay. And she says that I did not answer that. Instead, I just said, tell your gay friend to go to church. That sin is sin, go to church. And whatever sin that you deal with, like the sins I deal with, I go to church and I learn about God and he helps me with whatever my life is. Well, this really ticked her off. And she said, I should have told her that that being gay is not only a sin, it's an abomination, she wanted me to say, as, as Leviticus 18 says and 1 Corinthians says, and that I should have told her that they needed to repent 
And, and she gives me all kinds of verses for that too. Well, I want you to know, Kathy, that um, telling somebody something like that is not the solution. The solution to all of life's issues and problems, and however God works through those, is Jesus. And you have to realize who he is first and believe in him and let his spiritual strength come in you to guide you on how you live your life. That is the key. It's your faith and belief in him. Not my ability and, and to point out uh, what sins are in the Bible. And also to specialize that this one is an abomination. I got news for you, my friend. All sin's an abomination. All sin. Okay, so to spend my time doing that is not going to be advantageous to the true message, which is Jesus is the solution. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Paul went to God three times which, with a problem he said was a thorn in his side. And we don't know what it was. Now, pastors love to say he had an eye problem. But, uh, you know, that thorn in his side could have been he liked to bite the heads off rats or he might, he might like women a lot or he may, maybe Paul had a problem with homosexuality. We don't know. Don't get all riled up. We don't know. But he said, God, help me with this thorn in my side. You know what God said to him? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. You're keeping it. While you're in the flesh, you're keeping it. All right? So then we just remove all this, and then we can talk about how the Lord helps us in life. Do you get that? All right, and then she had another problem with Joel Osteen. Someone called about Joel Osteen. She writes, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and, and then she started saying that she saw... Uh, Osteen on Letterman and someone asked a Bible question and Osteen couldn't answer it! Exclamation point. And I wish that I should tell this woman that she should do this and do this and Osteen is that, you know. Methods, methods. Osteen, I don't like him because I don't like his way, alright? But <laughs> he, he reaches a lot of people and many of them believe in God. Many of them want to please God. And so we have stepping stones here. Not everybody's a theologian. And I, I'm not promoting Osteen. I, but, I mean, when do we stop all this? Now, people will say, well, you do the same things to the LDS. The only reason is because LDS say, we are biblical Christians. And I'm a biblical Christian, and I, I can't stand by and agree with that. So if Osteen said, uh, I'm a biblical Christian, and... He wore fezes and believed you pray to, to Ishnu. I would say, well, I have a problem with Osteen too. But he, he just has a different method of, of reaching out to people, okay? That covers those two. We have first-time callers. Excellent. Trisha in Salt Lake City online too. Trisha, you're on Heart of the Matter. Trisha? Yes. You're on the air, my friend. Okay. Well, I have a question. You're talking about Jesus and, and God being one person, right? One oh, God, yes. One God, okay. Well, didn't Jesus, actually, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, pray to his Father? And didn't he on the cross say, which has always been really strong for me, you know, Father, forgive them? Like, who was he talking to if that was himself? Like, I can't get that. He was talking to his Father. Now, it's what's... what's tough for a lot of people to understand, but primarily Latter-day Saints, is that they are three distinct personages. They are, there is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit, and they are distinct, but they make one God. They are not polytheistic. Jesus was a pre-incarnate with God in the glory of the Father, and he came and took on flesh. While he was in this flesh, he was man, and fully God, fully man. And so, when he prayed, he was showing us, this is what you do when you're in the flesh. You pray to the Father, and he in the flesh prayed to the Father. There's no inconsistency there. But okay. he was fully God. He just condescended and took on flesh and became man on our behalf. Okay, so the really, he really was talking to somebody else besides him? No, he was talking to the Father, but he was not talking to a separate God. So let me help explain this, and this might help. Okay. When you and your, or me, when we in our minds picture God, the Father in a body, Jesus in a body, and the Holy Spirit, poor guy, doesn't get a body, I guess, we think of at least two separate gods, if not three, right? Right. Okay, imagine all three as a spirit, a spirit like this. Do you have a problem seeing that this space between my hands is one? No. No. And so the difference is, is that 
if you take Jesus pre-incarnate with the Father and this Holy Spirit, they are one, they're spirit. But when Jesus came down and took on a body, he lowered himself, and so he was responsive to the Father as somebody in the flesh and overcame his flesh so that we could be saved. The big difference between Mormonism and Christianity in terms of who God is is they stick the Father in a body of flesh and bone. If you remove that idea of God, the Father in a body of flesh and bone, and in this space, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and Jesus condescending with the body, you'll have a better idea of how Christians understand the Trinity. Okay. Well, that helps a little bit. <laughs> I still kind of don't get it that well. Is there I, I know. somewhere I could well, read or something? Tricia, also, well, the best thing to read to understand the Trinity is going to be the Word. I mean, because when I was LDS and came out, I, the, the Trinity, forget it. I saw Father, Son, three separate distinct personages, like those pictures on the wall at church. You know, you just can't help it. Uh -huh. That's what you see. But uh, in time, if you read the Word, you will start to see that Jesus is fully God in the flesh. And one last thing. If your mind can understand the Trinity... I'm not sure you really are worshiping a, a magnificent God. I can barely understand pre-calculus or basic algebra. And I'm trying to understand a God who manages his entire everything and creates it from nothing. So we have to remember not to get maybe so highfalutin and, well, I want to understand him completely. I mean, the tr I think he is mysterious in some ways, and this is one of the mysteries. Okay. All right. All right. Hey, All thanks right. for the call. Okay, thank you. See you later. We're going to Sam in Lehigh. Uh, first time caller. Sammy, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing? Good. I have a question for you. Mm hmm. Um, I was raised LDS, left when I was 18, just because I was rebellious, and then found the truth later in life, and been going to the Rock Church for probably about 10 years now. Uh huh. And uh, tried to evangelize my parents, who were very strong LDS, and it backfired, I just sent him a link, simple link of the authenticity of the Bible and how it was, you know, translated and everything. Uh -huh. And that link, I guess, had said that the make the LBS to said that they were kind of like a cult, and they took offense to that. And so I kind of feel like I closed some doors on that, but yeah. um, I, don't, I don't know, I just looked in prison some advice. Well, you know, um, most Christians, I've done this, and, and I do it on the show sometimes too, but most Christians uh, make the mistake of throwing out the C word really early on and bagging on all the stuff that we talk about here on the show with their family and friends, and usually that just engenders anger and resentment, and so it's kind of unfair what we do on the show because people think you take this persona and you use it in your inner relationships, and it doesn't work. And so in my own family, and we try to say this often, with my wife and my children and, and my LDS friends, people I meet on airplanes every week, I don't go down the road of Joseph and his wives and their Bible and all that stuff. I just, I try to share Jesus as the source. And so the best method, in my opinion, is to just focus on, have you been born again? Have, do you understand who Jesus is through rebirth? And focus on that because many people, even many Christians, can't say sometimes, I have. But people who truly have can say, I, I have. I know Jesus. And so go that soft approach with Jesus and try to just talk about spiritual rebirth, the imperative Jesus gave in, G in John 3, you must be born again. Does that help? Yeah, so do it more by example than kind of win an argument. Yeah, but, but don't soft sell it and don't give in, but just try to make your responses in, couched in love and how Jesus is the answer to it all. Correct. Maybe try that one, my friend. Okay, thank you. Take care. You do. All right, bye-bye. And just to add before we go to Larry and Ellen, <clears throat> when Jesus says you must be born again, this is what happens. When you come to understand who he is and identify with his true nature, which is God, and you see what he did in the flesh for you, and that he took blows for you, and that he lived a life of love for all for you, 
and that the only way to get to heaven is through him and belief on him for you, you break. And you say, man, I don't stand a chance. And when you read Romans and it says, look, it, it's not of your works. It's nothing you can do. You are screwed unless you realize who came to save you. Unless you come to that, you're not going to have salvation. He says it himself. But when you come to realize what he did and who he really was, you break. You weep. You cry out. You say, save me, a sinner, like Peter did. And that is the rebirth that opens up your heart to be humble enough to receive him, to come in and then start directing your life. Because you certainly haven't directed it perfectly, and I haven't. But Jesus, when he comes in, he starts doing that. And that is that rebirth experience we talk about. So it comes through that humility and breaking that uh, 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 occurs through realizing who he is. All right. And that's why the identity of who Jesus is is so important. All right. We're going to go to Ellen and Manti. Ellen, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Good. We're in Manti and we are snowed in. No kidding. Hey, um, I emailed my uh, Mormon, my uh, neighbor, who is a bishop's wife today. And I emailed her these scriptures about the Trinity. And guess what I named the email? What did you name the email? What child is this? No kidding. I did. Wow, we have something in common. My husband are watching you on date night. We have date night, so we watch you. I'm part of your and date night? We're, we're watching it, and I'm going, oh, horrible. wow, this is way, way cool. We must have the same purpose. Oh, that is great. I love that, because that's so important, isn't it, at this time of year? It is, yeah. and that's why I wanted to tell her, you know, to, to get But I'll tell you what I did is I gave her Mormon scriptures that were Trinitarian. Yeah, there's a lot of them in the Book of Mormon there's before a lot Joseph of them. went off. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was so I started the email out with that, and it didn't, you know, it it didn't uh, offend her as much. Oh, excellent. Anyway, I have a question about why do Mormons? My my friend and I are really wondering why Mormons, when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross and paying for our sins, why do they always say that Jesus atoned for our sins? That's a, such a good question. Um, this is such a good question. Um, Ellen, the yes. word atonement is the covering for sin. And so the, the LDS, are, they do believe that Jesus shed blood did atone for the sins of the world. Okay, paid for it. But Christians believe because of scripture that through his life, he not only atoned for sin in, in his death, but when you believe on that blood that was shed, his righteousness is imputed to you. And you become righteous by virtue of your belief on him and his shed blood through the to the Father. The LDS only believe that he atoned or covered for the sin, but it's your righteousness that has You're, to... Oh. And so atonement is a perfect word for them because it means just the wiping away of the sin. Now, let's say that they were correct. If you believed in Jesus and all that he did was atone for sin, when you die, you would go to God and you would be a, near, a zero net sum. You would not be good. You would not be evil. You would just be blank. And so Latter-day Saints believe that's your state unless you work to increase that, that uh, righteousness and that helps qualify you for the blood of Jesus that he shed. Okay? But okay. the Christians believe, look, nothing I can do. He did it because I couldn't. I believe on his shed blood. And he not only atoned, but he makes me righteous through his righteousness and not my own. So, so that is the variance between the Christian and the Mormons. Big one. The imputed righteousness. Big one. Huge. Okay. Yeah, well, look that, do you. a Google, not a Google search, do a Bible search commentary on imputed and the words of the Greek that are for imputation of righteousness. And there's a lot of scriptures in the New Testament that will blow you away that will help you with your LDS friends. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks, Ellen. God bless. You too, bye. Okay, we have Jordan from Provo who is LDS online too. Jordan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, um... Yeah, like I said, my name is Jordan. Um, I'm in Provo, and um, 
I was just kind of curious. I, I don't like to pass judgments or anything like that. I am LDS. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of wanted a little background of, you know, um, I heard you make a comment about how you used to be LDS and you left the church or yeah. or something in that matter. I was just kind of curious what that was about, like what, what caused you to leave or what your path was. Uh, in a nutshell, and this is good to rehearse, I'm sorry for those of you who are now going to the refrigerator and taking a nap, but... Uh, really quickly, I was born in the church. I uh, went on a full-time mission. Uh, I got back, got engaged, married in, in the LDS Temple in Los Angeles, served as an elders quorum president, went to BYU, uh, bishopric, stake high council, high priest, early seminary teacher. And after 40 years of being in the church, I left. I left because of several things. First, I came to know who Jesus was. And I came to know who he was because I was broken as a sinner. I was a sinful man. Outwardly, I could play the game of being LDS, but inwardly, I was sinful to the core, and I knew it, and I couldn't fake it. Now, I didn't act on those sins through most of my life after the mission. Uh, when I was a youth, I was a bit rebellious, but most of my life after the mission temple marriage, I was doing well. But I started acting on those sins because I couldn't overcome myself, and I was a sinner in the truest sense of the word later on in my life. In that state, I went to the Lord and I pleaded for him to save me from myself. And he did, uh, Jordan, and he changed me so radically. And he gave me new life and he gave me the power to kind of understand him now. And I remained in the LDS church for four years thereafter in what I called myself a born-again Mormon. And uh -huh. I, I wrote a book and, and that's how this all happened. And then I left, asked to be excommunicated because I didn't believe in the in the doctrines anymore, and because I deserved it, in 2001, and that's when it happened. Okay. Um, so I just had one other question. Is that okay? Or we have sure, that? sure. Um, so, I mean, just knowing that background, um, kind of knowing what, you, you know, you went on your mission and you were married in the temple, looking back from where you are now, was, does that feel like you were feeling an evil spirit when you thought you were feeling the the spirit, like, you know, we speak in, in church, oh, I felt the spirit, he felt sure. the spirit. When that lingo is used, yeah. um, now looking back on that, do you see that as an evil spirit, or did you, do you think what you saw at that time really was, you know, from God? Um, I, have, I have a couple approaches to that, but um, one first answer is I think when you're living a, a life that is morally good and you're able to make choices that are morally better than bad ones, you feel a sense of peace, unquestionably. And the LDS, when you're living a lifestyle that is a little bit more uh, uh, clean than others, I think you do feel a sense of peace that does come from God, without question. But the second thing is, the feelings of peace that you get from what you call the Spirit in the LDS Church is absolutely indistinguishable from the same feelings I feel when I see the American flag, or, when I, or uh -huh. if, if I was a patriot. Patriotism, right. Mormonism, the love I have for family, the feelings I have about things like that. When I hear a great song, and for me, it could be by some horrible band that I like, but if I hear it, all those same feelings are the same. Sure. So I don't, feel, so, I, mean, I don't feel like when I heard testimonies that were very emotional or sang beautiful music and that that was the spirit looking back retrospectively. Uh-huh. And, and we do learn from, you know, from church and from God and from the Bible and, and all the scriptures that that, you know, there's, it's black and white. There is no lukewarm. Things are good or things are bad. Things are from God or things are from the devil. I mean, isn't that kind of, kind of strange? I mean, I, I find that a little strange on how it can be mixed. No, I mean, because I know what you're saying exactly, but, yeah, but, but Jordan, it feels Jesus, like if that's a good feeling and it feels right and it feels patriotic and all those things, and it's you a think good that's, feeling. It's like, you think that's all from God devil. because it's a good thing? What was that? You think that all definitely indicates that God's in it because it, it produces good feelings? Well, it just, it just seems a little, a little strange that, I'm not saying either way, I'm just saying it feels a little strange that, that something coming from the devil could feel so good and oh, feel gosh, so this you is know, right, like patriotic. And okay, like Jordan, that. let me say something to you. Uh, huh? you, ought to read, you ought to read Eric Hoffer's book called The True Believer. Now, he's an huh? atheist, but he studies mass movements. And look at Hitler. He used rousing, beautiful music, the greatest huh? architecture to inspire uh -huh. people to do horrific things. Jesus uh -huh. said, remember Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. So there's a peace uh -huh. that comes with the world, without question. But his peace is very different. 
And so he even distinguishes from the peace that comes from the world and the peace that he brings. Does that help? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It helps. I understand. I, it just seems still a little bit, you know, cloudy to me that, that something that feels so, there's so much depth. Feels so spirit, right to be so wrong. call the spirit that we feel that it just doesn't seem like it could be any other, any other force. You, I got to tell you, man, if I relied on my feelings, I would be, I would be in such trouble because I fall in love with people left and right that I shouldn't be falling in love with. And it's not love. It's just a feeling. You know, we can get uh -huh. ourselves in a great deal of trouble when you just say, boy, I feel this. It's got to be God. You know, I feel like eating a pizza every night, and I know he doesn't want me to do that. <laughs> you have to distinguish between the feelings that come with the world and the feelings that come from God. Jordan, we're almost out of time, my brother. Really good call. Thank you. Yep. God bless. Bye-bye. Going to try to fit Larry in here. I'm No, actually, we're going to fit Dave here. Uh, sorry, Larry. Dave, you're from Ogden, first-time caller. You're on the air. Hey, Sean. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Same to you. Um, the first comment I want to make that um, as I, I'm a former member of the LDS Church, uh -huh. and I think one of the major stumbling blocks that the LDS have to recognize in appreciating the Trinity is that uh, their philosophical beliefs is that they can go on to become a god. Oh. And so just the, the nature of, of, of the theology that, plurality that they will someday become a god is um, a real stumbling block to seeing God as a, as a, uh, a single amazing being that, that cannot really be defined even with the word Trinity. Yeah, that makes sense. Now yeah. I have a question for you. Um, yeah. Uh, do the LDS believe that in their pre-existent theology that they participated in the creation of the heavens and the earth? There's quotes from uh, past general authorities that say yes, but that's also predicated on their uh, nobleness of spirit. So I think the quotes uh, say, and I'd have to look this up, but I think the quotes say something to the effect of, if you are born in the church, then you would have been some who have, would have participated in the creation. Okay. Hey, man, okay. great call. We're out of time. Really appreciate Thanks, it. God bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Just remember, Calvary Campus, we're going to begin 2010, Sunday, January 3rd. Heart of the Matter will begin airing its 2010 programs on uh, January 5th, one-week break. And The Infallible World will be begin airing its new programs on Monday, January 11th. Uh, and then pray for the great generation. We hope to see that hopefully by mid-January once we get a approval. We're working on that one uh, hard. Hey, I want to introduce you to somebody. This, come on up. This is Christmas, and this is, this is what Christmas is all about. Come around here, buddy. Come around, stand up. Oh, my gosh, you're going to kill me. All right, what's your name? Ashton. Ashton. Ashton, look right at that camera. And uh, did, are you, do you uh, excited for Christmas? Yeah. What did you ask for? Um, uh, Mario with Nintendo. Nintendo? Dude, expensive gifts. Ashton, do you have a message you want to give to the, uh, the people out there? Look in that camera. About Christmas? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. What do you want to say about Christmas? Mm, I want to say altars. He's speaking in tongues right now. I think he said, I think, wait, I'm giving the gift of translation. He said, God bless you all. Have a great and Merry Christmas. And we'll see you next year here on Heart of the Matter. Be safe. Bye-bye. Say goodbye. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. I'm going to break my rusty cage and run. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. Break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my.